Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about suicide, loss, depression and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on triple zero. I was scared but genuinely pretty happy and incredibly confident that I was going to be a good dad. And yeah, it just all came crashing down in in way that I never really expected. When Craig Anderson became a father, he never imagined it would be him asking for help. I all of a sudden just thought, I hate being a dad. I remember walking up DY Headland and I just sat down on this rock and just had this overwhelming urge to jump off. When it comes to the perinatal period, fathers and non-birthing partners can sometimes feel like outsiders to an experience they're viscerally part of, unable to relate to the joy of carrying a child and helping through the pain of birthing a child. In the absence of this, fathers and non-birthing partners can feel as if their only contribution is to be the fixer, to be the rock, putting their own mental health on the back burner until it's too late. Oh, I didn't know much about it at all, naively. I certainly didn't think men could get it. I would have laughed at you if you said that. Pregnancy and the first year of parenthood is a time of major change in a person's life that, without the right support, can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and one in 10 fathers who've lived through it, ready to start talking. I'm Craig, and I'm one of the one in 10 fathers who have experienced perinatal depression and anxiety. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the unique experience of fathers and non-birthing partners throughout the perinatal period with psychologist Derek Ebb joining us later to discuss the barriers to seeking help and why it's so important. Craig? Davina? How did you meet your wife? Boringly, I met her at work. She was the EA to the CEO of my company and her dad was the head of HR, so I like to live dangerously. I quickly learnt Beck had just gone through a pretty major medical episode. She had a brain tumour removed when she was 19, and she was still on the comeback trail from that. I wouldn't say love at first sight, but it was definitely mates and then quickly something blossomed from there. So was fatherhood always on the plan for you? When I was younger, certainly. So when I was 15, 16, all I wanted to do was have kids. As I got older, it kind of got less and less appealing, to be honest. Um, The more I was around them, the more I was like, maybe I'm pretty happy with my life of TV and PlayStation (laughs) and, uh, and pubs, but... I think it was always something that I thought I would do and that I would be good at. So Beck falls pregnant. Yep. What were your thoughts? Well, it was really planned. You know, we got married and she was on some pretty heavy medication. So we were told pretty much, if you want to have kids, start trying, don't put it off. So we're married in August and our son Clark was born 
in July the next year. So we were just incredibly lucky because of Beck's medical condition. We were always waiting for something to go wrong. We were just told to temper our expectations, don't get too attached kind of thing. So every scan, I was expecting something to go wrong, which I think did something to me biologically at that time. But I was scared, but genuinely pretty happy and incredibly confident that I was going to be a good dad. I wasn't worried about that at all. I just thought I'm going to be brilliant. I'm going to meet this child and love it and hold it and fireworks are going to go off and I'm going to only feed it organic foods and no screen time and and days at the zoo and all the stuff that you kind of stereotype yourself as a parent that you're going to be. So, yeah, I had no, no expectation or no idea of what was coming. I just thought I could do it. And the day Clark was born? Yeah, it was like clockwork. Beck was induced. We expected issues, so they, they kind of brought it forward. I had very little to do with it. <laughs> you know, I was like a spectator for the most of it. The birth went remarkably well, a natural birth, which they didn't think we would be able to achieve. He came out incredibly quickly. I caught a sight of the placenta, which I never want to see again. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I, it was a bystander. It was tough seeing Becky in that much pain, but like anyone, you just got to grit and bear it and put up with the hand-breaking screams that she does. But Clark had some issues with, he had fluid on his lungs. He essentially wouldn't cry, so he didn't get that big out, right? He didn't have the big scream. So I didn't have that big moment I expected. You know, it was kind of, here's a cuddle, and I put him on me, and, you know, he's slimy and gross, and I didn't really feel anything. Oh, tick a box, get the photo, put him back, they sent him into the Humi crib. And I went with him and just kind of sat there looking at him, him looking at me through the glass. And it's not that I didn't feel nothing. It's just that I didn't feel the big show-stopping fireworks, my heart's melting. The this Hollywood is, moment. I'd, absolutely not. Yeah, it didn't happen for me. But other people around you react. Oh, mum and dad. Wow. Mum and dad. So I, we had Clark at North Shore private. And my mum and dad live in like Camden, Campbelltown, around that area. And I told him, hey, look, it's happening. We're inducing today. I don't know how long it's going to be. I'll let you know. And then when we got out of special care initially and they could come up and have some visitors, I texted Dad and said, we're here. Why don't you guys head on over? And he goes, cool, we're downstairs. We have been for five hours. So <laughs> he was edge of his seat. You know, they were, they were, everyone else had that, oh, my God, you know, tears. And I was kind of like, yeah, it's cool. You know, we got him out of special care and they discharged us that day and said, off you go. See you later. Beck. Develop postnatal anxiety and depression. Yep. When did things start to become clear that not all was well? In hindsight, very quickly, but as someone who was pretty in the dark about, you know, what you just assume is baby blues, I didn't pick up on it as quickly as I should have. And I still feel incredible guilt for that. But straight away, we struggled. So, so we got, we obviously took Clark home. And I remember having a phone call with my mum where we'd fed him or what we thought was feeding him. I'd give him a cuddle and I put him in the cot and I walked away and he screamed. I'm like, well, why isn't he sleeping? I'm calling my mum going like, mum, this baby won't sleep. And she said, well, have you wrapped him? And I'm like, no. She goes, have you cuddled him? Have you patted him? Have you soothed him? I said, no, I just put him in the cot. And I just realised how idiotic it was for me just to think this baby's just going to go to sleep. We had a lot of issues feeding, so breastfeeding was something Beck wanted to do and obviously like most mothers really wanted to push and we couldn't get it right. It took us probably 12 weeks to actually get through it. So he wasn't feeding properly. 
he wasn't sleeping really at all. You know, we, we couldn't get him down for any longer than half an hour, 40 minutes, because babies that don't eat generally don't sleep. And I think it was just a lot of sense of frustration on the back of exhaustion from us both. And I remember we were living in Manly at the time and we had a partial glimpse of the water. And I remember coming into the living room when she was trying to feed Clark at like 3 a.m. And I thought there was a glint of like moonlight off the water. And I thought, oh, that's pretty. And it was just Beck sobbing, just crying, quiet crying while she was trying to feed Clark. And that was kind of when I knew something, something's not right. You call yourself a fixer. So your plan was to fix things, to yeah. to get the house back on track, yeah. to step in, to look after Clark, to look after Beck. What was that like? I, I think it's a natural reaction to, to men. You know, we, we, we don't just hear things and, and listen. We want to then go and fix the problem, even if it's not your problem to fix. So I started taking Clark to do all the drop-offs and all the pickups, and and really making sure Beck had time to herself because that was what she needed. She needed time to reset. Now I'm a guy that's always needed my own time to reset, even when it was just me. But I just didn't, and it was my it was the biggest year in my career. More and more was getting expected of me at work than at home. I was really pushing the boundaries with Clark, with making sure Beck had her time and, and not feeling guilty for it, just saying, you need this, this is our priority now. And so I thought, you know, I was being that super dad for a few months and, and you know, taking it all on and everything was going swimmingly and look how good I am. Anyone asked how I was, I'm brilliant. Yeah, I'm loving being a dad. I was awkward. You know, I, I couldn't really do the things for Clark like my wife can. You know, I couldn't settle him. To this day, I still can't. I certainly couldn't do the bonding with him that my wife does. I, I didn't have the patience, but I was doing an okay job of it or so I thought. But I was getting less and less time to myself to, to, to make sure that I was looking after myself mentally, to do the things that I like to do and, and, and that keep me centred. And yeah, it just all came crashing down in in way that I never really expected. I always thought if you had depression, you were sad, and if you had anxiety, you were anxious and really for me it just turned out to be anger that kind of exacerbated itself in this one moment where everything that went wrong and and pushed into my anxiety kind of happened at the same time and and yeah I just exploded so it was a pretty scary incident. That one moment was on a ferry and you had Clark with you. Yeah so we couldn't get Clark into a daycare in the northern beaches it was a real big shortage kind of at the time. So I have a daycare in my building in the city. So for three days a week, he'd come into the city with me on the ferry. And I'd always try and avoid peak times because you know, I've got a pram. Those ferries are pretty small. You know, I'm conscious of the people around me and I always was. I was worried about how Clark or, or me caring for him would impact on others around me. I don't know why. It was always just a hang up I had. Coming home, it was about four o'clock. It was summer. I thought I was doing the right thing by avoiding peak hour. He was having one of those days, you know, those days where no matter what you do. <laughs> they don't want to behave. They don't want to, and I just missed the ferry. So then I, I pulled on to the next one. I was like the first one on. Within five minutes, he was losing his mind. So I left the pram there and I picked him up and I walked outside. He used to like just looking at the water. We passed the heads on the way back to Manly and I started walking inside and I didn't realise but the ferry had just got so packed it was so busy and I was like he was screaming his head off pretty much the whole time and I went in I said just get the ferry get prepared 
and we can get off and end this horrible trip and go and drink a bottle of whiskey. I went in to get him. He was kind of arching back. I went in to get the pram and middle-aged couple had kind of sat where my pram was and I walked over and said, oh, excuse me, can I just get through to get the pram? They did the kind of shoulder move, you know, where it's like, oh, I don't want to move, but I'll, I'll just kind of shuffle. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to move. It's a pram, I have to get there. And she huffed and puffed and kind of got up and went to move. And I grabbed the pram and pulled it out. And I heard she uttered to the gentleman she was with, why would he park the pram there if he wasn't going to sit there? And he turned around and said, because he's a dickhead. And it was an absolute ridiculous comment to make. But in my head, it was, this is exactly what I'm afraid of. Clark's screaming. People are looking at me. I can't get out. I can't escape. I'm on this pressurised cabin and I've got to deal with this for 10 minutes. And in that moment, every sense of withholding left me, except for one tiny shred. And I had this flashing in my head of just knocking this guy out and just stomping on his head. And I was red to the gills. And I just was that angry, I kind of went numb. And I, I was, it was a truly out-of-body experience. And I didn't even realise, I came back into consciousness and Clark was still doing what Clark does in my arm. And this sweetheart of a, a young 18-year-old girl said, don't listen to him, can I help? I went, can you grab the pram for me? And she said, yep. And I walked out. And by the time she got the pram to me, I was just in tears. And I said, thank you. And I walked off. And I got home. I didn't tell Beck about it. She goes, how was the trip home? And I was like, it was rough. And then for the next few days, I had to call him sick to work. Because the idea of getting back into that environment and taking him, I, I, I couldn't do it. The idea of being anywhere where there were people around me, I was just in hindsight, really, really scared of what I would do if that happened again because I know how close I came and I'm not the calmest guy in the world. But that wasn't you. That wasn't me. I, I've never been that close to, to being in a physical altercation in my life and, and it just scared the pants off me. So you'd been accessing help through Gidget for Beg. Did you think this is the path I need to go down to straight away? No, <laughs> not even a little bit. I, I didn't think it had anything to do with anything. I all of a sudden just thought... I hate being a dad. This is crap. The only time I ever felt comfortable with Clark was when we were in our apartment on the floor wrestling or, you know, doing stupid faces at each other. That's the only time I was like, I'm nailing this. This is so fun. God, I love him, all that type of stuff. Anytime outside of that, I hated. I hated every moment. They're saying, let's go to the park, let's go to the beach, let's go to the cafe. And I'm just saying, no, 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 no. Like any excuse, he's got a runny nose, he looks tired, we've got to focus on his sleep, I don't feel well, all that type of stuff, I'm too tired, whatever I could come up with. At that point, during the pregnancy and in those early few months, had you heard about dads and, and non-birthing partners suffering from postnatal anxiety and depression? No, no, I absolutely not. It was never even something I considered possible, you know. It was, it was just, you've got to look after the mum, you know, you got to look after the... And even then, it was more you just got to look after the baby. How's the baby? The baby's the focus. It wasn't the mum's the focus. You know, I didn't really know much about postnatal depression or anxiety in those days. You know, this is obviously six years ago for women. Well, I didn't know much about it at all, naively. I certainly didn't think men could get it. I would have laughed at you if you said that. 
how and, and when did help come about for you? My amazing wife noticed something was wrong, obviously said on one of those days where I refused to go out, she goes, you've got to tell me, you've got to level with me, what's going on? And I told her about the day on the ferry and she said, this is an anxiety issue, you've, you've got to go see someone. And I said, yeah, okay, I'm open to that, obviously, no problem. She said, I want you to go see the Gidget Foundation. And at that point, I was a beaten man. I didn't care. I was like, book it in, I'll go. I don't, I don't care. And I remember going to the appointment and just feeling like the biggest fraud in the world. Like, what a waste of time this is. You know, I'm, I'm going to a underfunded, you know, foundation where I'm taking up someone's time to, to talk to me. And in the end, I almost didn't go a million times. And I just thought, no, go in. At the very least, you can ask questions about how you can help Beckmore. You know, you can pick their brains about what more can I do. And that's how I walked in the room. They're not going to be able to help me, you know. And I walked in and within five minutes, like five minutes, I had a diagnosis of anxiety, perinatal anxiety. And I, I just bawled my eyes out because it was the first time since I'd gone through all of this that it wasn't just that I'm a bad dad. It was something that I could get treatment for because that was the fear. You're just not cut out for this. Why did you sign up for this? This was your choice to be a father. Why didn't you put more thought to it? You're so bad at it. You hate it. He hates it. He's better off without you. All those, all those thoughts. And to get a diagnosis of, no, mate, like this is a medical condition that we're going to treat you for and you're going to recover from was, you know, one of the happiest moments of my life. And it's continued to provide my family with happiness. Was it relief almost because you had a name? Absolutely. As a fixer, I can fix that, right? So, so you give me something to be able to fix, Craig, you've got to work at this, but you do these steps, you will get better. And yeah, relief, absolute relief. I walked out of there so stoked, so happy, with a plan, focused, realising that I can actually do this and baffled at why I'd never heard of it before. I went on some medication, which helped, and then practical steps about tools in my arsenal, breathing exercises, what I can do, noticing the the rise in body temperature that I get when I get angry and, and noticing myself tensing and walking away at that point rather than hanging on and fighting and getting it to the point where I'm just gone, I'm on another planet. It was real tangible steps for me, practical advice that I could put into practice straight away. How did you protect yourself then once you were on track to to getting better, knowing that Beck was still recovering Mm. and there still was a bit of pressure there to be super dad? We started telling absolutely everyone that we knew that this was happening. We'd hidden it in shame and I guess getting the diagnosis was part of you, you need your village, right? And we just decided to tell everyone, hey, we're struggling. When people asked how we were, we were honest. When people started saying, can we help? We said, yep. We needed to make sure that we got the time that we needed to individually and, and together. You know, that was a big important thing for us was spending some time together. And the more we spoke about it, the better we felt the more normalised it felt, the more it was just like, we're struggling, having an issue today, we need some help, can someone come over and have a couple of hours? You know, like that, that, that really did help. Telling my employer that what was going on and that there's a reason that I'm not going to be able to come to the office today and not hide it and not feel ashamed by it and having an amazing organisation, we both do. And then just trusting it and baby steps. Do you think you were sold this fairy tale of what parenthood was going to be like? And do you think, part of your healing was smashing that fairy tale and 
and letting people in and, and seeing that it's not as perfect as, as what the Hollywood makes it out to be. Yeah. I thought about this a lot and I don't want to stop anyone's parade, right? There are people out there and I know them, parents out there that absolutely adore everything about being a mother, but that's not everyone. And no one I'd ever heard about had spoke about poor side of parenting, the struggles that they face. And like some of my closest friends had kids at that point and I never really asked, but they never really said, hey, by the way, we haven't slept in four days. Billy's got reflux. You know, I can't even have a shower without him crying. No one's ever really spoke about that. And Hollywood and social media these days have a bunch to play, but general people in their own circle of friends just do not tell them how parenthood really is. And I do. I reckon I've turned off so many people from having kids, (laughs) which I don't mean to do, but for every, I say this as like my catchphrase, but it's genuinely true. I've had the highest of highs from my son and and my, my girls. I've experienced love and moments of joy that I absolutely have never come close to experiencing anywhere else. But I've also had the lowest of lows with them. They have given me my worst moments best moments and worst moments and they don't cancel each other out you can have one without the other in in a fantasy world but i can't so i couldn't have had these amazing highs and joys without experiencing the really lows of the lows no one talked about the lows and i do <laughs> i guess your experience with clark and, and and your diagnosis of the anxiety you found a path through gidget mm. to help with the recovery it takes a brave couple who's been through an experience like that to then decide that they want to have mm. another child. I know from my own experience, it, it took four years for us yep. to get there. When did you decide, I think we can do this again? It was a very long considered process. You know, we didn't jump in. We, we were for a long time. That's it. You know, we got lucky with the conception. We got lucky with the, the birth process. We've been through hell. We're starting to get our life back. And then around Clark being, I guess, three and a half, four, we both started thinking this just doesn't feel done. Could we do it again? You know, we were in a much better place mentally. We knew what to expect. We spoke with Gidget before we even started trying, saying, look, what can we do to protect ourselves? What practices can we put in place? We made a calculated decision that we wanted to have another go. We found out Beck was pregnant. And I was so excited. We were just like, we approached this one with utter joy. We were just going to, we can't wait. We get to go through all of this again, but we're going to do it the right way. We found out we're pregnant. We didn't even go to the obstetrician for 12 weeks. We were (laughs) like, we don't need to know. We're all good, right? And we just bought our first apartment. It was Um, a two-bedroom, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. (laughs) So we bought a a two-bedroom apartment and um, we found out Beck was pregnant in the cooling-off period. And we were like, ah, two, two bedrooms, two kids. They can share a room for a few years. Everything will be fine. That makes sense. Yeah. And then week 12, found out it was twins. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, had more uh, kids than I did bedrooms in the house. So you thought you could prepare yourself to go through pregnancy again. But twins is a whole different adventure, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and like, honestly, and... Not a lot of people, I try and protect my family and hers to some degree. It felt like a death sentence. It really did. So that moment that you found out Yeah, twins. we were in, went to the obstetrician. 
was like, why are we here? You know, we know there's a baby. It's all healthy. You know, let's just get the scan. And she got the first ultrasound on. And, you know, dad, second time around, I was typing an email on my work phone while it was happening. And Beck's like, oh, look, babe. And I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. And, like, back typing to my phone. And the obstetrician pulled it off. And I saw her look in Beck's face. And she had a quizzical look. And the obstetrician just looked at us and said, there's two. And started laughing. And I just dropped my phone, shattered all over the floor. I put my head between my hands and just all the excitement and the joy that I had turned to despair. And I mean absolute gut-wrenching despair for weeks. I just couldn't get my head around how we were going to get through this with a four-year-old son and twins and we were one bad night away from everything going back to where we were again. And I was petrified. So you'd experienced anxiety before, but this was a completely different feeling, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And and in pregnancy, I didn't put a lot of credence to it. And my mum kept saying this, and I rolled my eyes every time she said, she said, Craig, babies bring their own love. You'll be fine. And I rolled my eyes. I'm like, thanks, mum. Like, thanks, Dr. Phil. I don't need that. Some part of me latched onto that and said, when they come, you'll, you'll feel different. And then they came two and a half months early. So we did the NICU journey through lockdown. And at that point, I got to kind of parent by numbers because in NICU, you do nothing, right? For the first few weeks, the amazing nurses there do everything. They do all the cleaning, they do all the feeding. It's all through tube while the girls get their strength up. I got through it and gradually got to do the cuddle, first cuddle, which was building up to and a lot of skin-to-skin contact in, in there, you know, they, they say they need it for their breathing regulation and all that type of stuff. So got to bond with them in a very special way. And, and this time getting through NICU was, was a breeze. And so we got them home and it was still lockdown times around then, but the first few months went really, really well. But I started to feel trapped a lot. And I didn't realise how bad I was feeling, but I was getting angry because they were really had trouble feeding. Like what we went through with Clark was nothing compared to the girls and we couldn't get weight on them. We couldn't get weight. So we were constantly threatened with going back in the hospital. My youngest daughter had a seizure. We had to go back in and then she had another one so we had to go back in and we were just having a lot of issues. And then Beck took the girls up to her mum's and I went for a walk. And I remember walking up DY Headland and I just sat down on this rock and just had this overwhelming urge to jump off I just sat there and thought about everything I'd been through everything my wife had been through how hard it had been the struggles we were facing financially and all I wanted to do was just step off girls will get some money you know I've got life insurance say I fell it's pretty rocky up here and just thinking it through logically that the best outcome here was that I didn't exist right I got a phone call a work phone call and I thought I better take that and I picked it up, and before I knew it, I was walking, and before I knew it, I was back down on solid ground. And I got off the work call, and I said, what are you thinking? Like, what are you doing? You've got three kids and a wife who needs you. And I picked up the phone to Beck, and I said, get me an appointment at Gidget. This isn't normal. And so that was way more intense than what I have experienced with Clark because it was a mood thing. It was like, I was obviously just very low in mood and didn't realise how depressed I was until I'd kind of got through the major part of the hurdles and all the adrenaline had worn off and I just fell to bits. So that was a different process of building myself back up again. 
Your recovery from anxiety, you said, was reasonably fast. What about from depression? It's still ongoing. You know, I, I still have to be really conscious of it because we've had a lot of challenges with the girls. They've been constantly in and out of hospital. So I'm conscious of the fact that I'm coping well, but I cope well in a crisis and then I don't. And we just don't have time to get the don't stage because before we know it, we're going through it again. But it's been a lot tougher. It's been a lot easier to talk about and, and honest with people about how I'm going because people can understand. Right? When I tell people I've got depression and this is the story and they go, mate, if I'd gone through that, I'd be depressed as well. It's the, the practices. It's doing the right things and giving myself every chance to be the best father I can. I'm a great father to the kids. I really am, but I have to work at it. And if I don't, I'm terrible. <laughs> you know, I've really got to try and make it a priority and make sure by making it a priority, I've got to focus on myself. I've got to give myself the time. I've got to be able to go to the gym. I've got to be able to play soccer. I've got to be able to get some time to myself every now and then. And so Beck and I are incredibly regimented on giving ourselves the time we need. Even though you're leaving the other one with three kids, you can't have any guilt about that. It's go shopping, go to the gym, go do what you want to do, go for a night out with the girls, you know, go for a few beers with the boys. Make sure you're taking that time and we're inc- incredibly strict on making sure we do that and um, that's been a big part of, of being able to get through it. Talking also seems to have helped you though. How hard were those first few conversations with mates about what you were feeling with other dads? When I saw what it had done for me, all I thought about is how many guys out there have been through this and have said nothing about it because they haven't heard about it or they're ashamed. How much it's helped my life, where I'd be without the treatment, I do do know and I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be living. There's zero doubt about that. So when I look at it and I went, this has just helped me and it is so easy. Why is no one talking about this? The fact that I've started talking, I know it's helping. I've had mates in my inner circle that, you know, we talk about super mums. He's a super dad. He's the one that's on Instagram and, and, and Facebook constantly with doing a, an amazing activity with his, with his kids, just constantly out doing it, day at the park, this, that, and, and reached out to me and said, who do I talk to? I'm struggling. And that knocked my socks off. I've had four or five people in my inner circle say, I'm struggling, who do I talk to? I just don't accept anymore that, we as men in particular, you know, there's a stigma attached to it. It just, it can't happen. I, I, I just laugh at it and go, asking for help is the hardest thing I've done. Accepting it is the second hardest. Talking about it's the easiest because it's benefited my life. It's benefited my family. My kids, my family, my wife owe everything to, to the Gidget Foundation you know, for the life that we have and, and the things that we get through it. So I'll talk about the treatment options until I die. If people think less of me for it, that's that's on them. It's not on me. Not every dad is in that boat, though. There'd be plenty of people listening who have a, a wife or a partner or a family member who are worried about yep. their their dad in, in their lives, yep. but they don't want help or, or they don't think they need help. What do you say to those dads? It's not about you, even though it's about you. The dads I met that have opened up have said, oh, I'm just trying to hold it together for the family. Not sorting yourself out is the worst thing you're doing for your family. Trying to carry everything yourself and trying to self-diagnose or self-treat or self-medicate is probably the worst thing you could be doing. 
the best thing you can do for your family is go and get some help. And it's not as easy as what I've said, but it also is. Just go and talk to someone. Talk to your GP. Talk to your mate. And if your mate talks to you, take it seriously. Don't try and fix it. Just listen. You know, I hope Clark's that man one day that is either asking for help or, or giving the help. You know, I think that's, that's part of growing up in this environment is being aware of your mental health. And, and he will be. He has to be. Well, Beck Clark and George and Eloise are very lucky to have you. Thank you. We heard from Craig about the perceived need to put on a mask and become super dad. It's an experience many fathers face. And this is also something non-birthing partners can resonate with, feeling as if their own mental health is not as important as the person giving birth. To discuss this further, clinical relationship psychotherapist Derek Ebbs is here. He's worked with hundreds of male and non-birthing partners, helping them through the very real and non-discriminatory experience of PNDA. Well, Derek, are mums the only people who suffer perinatal anxiety and depression? It's dads too, as we, as we know, one in ten. People say, well, what does anxiety look like? It looks like many things, but usually it looks like man getting angry. Sadly, you see a man crying, you'll go to help him. You see a man being angry, you'll blame him and you'll call him names. And but same, same guy, just reaching out for help. I, I do a dad's group for men who either have perinatal anxiety and depression or their partner has. But when I gave that statistic to the dads, this is oh, one, one, only one in 10. We think it's more. <laughs> Why do you think it's being underreported then? Well, I think uh, as as we heard Craig in that beautiful human story we heard Craig talk about is that dads are fixers, <laughs> so they don't ask for help. The other part of it could be also that sometimes in, in the mother-baby dyad, the dad can be kind of excluded sometimes. And it, it, there's research showing that even now dads are kind of treated on the sidelines by maternity wards and by all that. So when baby arrives, they feel a bit useless. All this can lead to a sense of disconnection, really. They're alone. They don't have people to talk to because, well, I'm not going to admit to this. So they have this sense of isolation and disconnection. And, and this, is, this is the real tragedy of perinatal depression anxiety is that at a time when this baby needs attunement, PNDA interferes with the attunement in with baby. Craig spoke about that that Hollywood moment, the moment the baby's born and it's handed to you and there's fireworks. Yeah. How much pressure does that scenario place, particularly on dads? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big pressure, isn't it? Mom and dads, but dads, again, it's sold to us, isn't it, by society and, okay, this is how it's going to go. You're going to have a baby and you're going to feel like fantastic and it's going to be all great and you're going to bond with your baby immediately and and if it's a son, you're going to have this special bond. And if it's a daughter, you're going to have a different special bond. And as Craig spoke about, well, it kind of didn't happen for me, he said, you know, and this is very common. The groups I run with Gidget, with the, the partner support group, we're calling it parenting and partnership, which is saying, you know, parenting is a 50% equal thing of mum and dad. The men saying that, wow, I, I didn't know there were other people like me in this group. There's other guys just like me. That's my story you're telling. It's starting that conversation, though, and particularly in men. How do you start it? Well, I think we normalise. I call the, the group, it's a kind of a secret man's business. 
And I think I heard Craig said, uh, like it was a beautiful story where he's talking about he's on the phone, he's on the, the DIY cliff and he's having these very intrusive thoughts. He gets a distracted phone call and he's just wandering off talking to a mate and suddenly he gets down the end of the cliff and he's forgotten. That was a good metaphor for what happens in a, in a group of men. They just come in, they talk about the footy and they talk about, and then we just gently move into talking about experiences and suddenly they're starting to be educated about what is perinatal depression anxiety. We think of men as tough, but it's just an outer, it's just an outer shell. Once you get men talking together, they, they can actually share beautiful things. And employers are starting to realize we can retain good people if we just accept that this is just normal stuff. There's nothing extraordinary about someone having a baby and really struggling to adjust to this major life change. Craig spoke about talking and therapy, medication, but he also spoke about the importance of, of having time for yourself away from the family unit and not feeling guilty about that. That's hard to get into that routine, but it's really important, isn't it? Yeah. And, and this is the, 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 the perinatal will bring on the guilt. There's always a guilt. Like we talk about mother guilt, but there's a father guilt too. And so it's so important, yeah, to keep doing the things you did before baby. I remember when I had my first child, an old lady said to me, she said, you remember, baby's coming to live with you. You know, you're not going to live with the baby. So just keep living your life and the baby will adjust. Some things you're going to have to, you're going to have to let go because you won't have as much time. But it's, again, it's having that beautiful conversation with your partner. Say, look, how, how are you going? What do you need? And being able to ask really for y- your needs. I loved what Craig said about, you know, I discuss with my young five-year-old now all about mental health and have conversations. The gift of that is that child will grow up knowing what dependency is. You know, he'll know, I can ask for help. That's creating beautiful, resilient, independent young people which become independent adults, you know. How common is it when perinatal anxiety and depression that a father can develop it too? It, it's quite common. Either they will develop it themselves or they're in it. Remember what we're saying is that if someone in the family has perinatal depression, it's going to affect three people all the time, the partner and the baby. The man may not be fully diagnosed with perinatal depression anxiety, but he may have all the worries and the symptoms and, and the pressure. If he's a, if a avoidant kind of man and a fixer, and I don't do that stuff, it's possible he could dismiss his partner, which is going to increase her anxiety, depression, which will increase his stuff around that. And so it's a reciprocal cycle we're in. That's why it's always good to, if the mum has it, bring in the partner too and have a chat too, because your wife is not having a bad day. This is a medical condition. It's treatable. It's temporary. If we treat this as a family, as a system, it's going to be better outcomes for everybody. So if mums or dads are listening right now and they're worried about the dad in their lives, what do you say to them? Go talk to a GP. Go talk to Gidget. As we heard Craig said, he was 10 minutes in that room and life changed. If we can get the dad there, the, the rest is easy. Just go along, even to prove your partner wrong. Hey, how about that, you know? <laughs> because we know that they won't, but if it's an incentive, if that gets you there, we're confident dad will start listening and he'll go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I can learn something out of this. Derek, thank you. 
This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.